You are listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life inspired by the ancient tradition of Stoic philosophy from Greece and Rome. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. This is episode number 103, Breakfast with Seneca, a Stoic Guide to the Art of Living. I speak with author David Feidler about his newest book, dubbed A Clear and Faithful Guide to the Timeless Practical Teachings of the Stoic Philosopher Seneca. David holds a PhD in philosophy and has been involved his entire life in exploring the contributions that ancient philosophy can make to the modern world. His books include Restoring the Soul of the World, the Pythagorean Sourcebook and Library, and he was invited to write the article for the New Dictionary of the History of Ideas on Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism. He's also an advisor to the Plato's Academy Center Project in Athens. Find more information in the show notes. On with today's episode. All right. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, it's uh, great to be speaking with you. Um... Here with David Feibler, author of Breakfast with Seneca, a Stoic Guide to the Art of Living, available on Amazon, Kindle, and fine bookstores near you. So thank you for coming on today, and let's talk about your new book and Stoic philosophy in general. So you chose Seneca. Why Seneca for the topic of your book? Uh, well, I've been uh, interested in uh, ancient philosophy my whole life, but about 15 years ago I started uh, reading Seneca. That is when uh, I suppose uh, Stoicism started to become uh, popular again. And uh, I was really attracted to Seneca because having a background in philosophy, it was very refreshing to me to read the works of a philosopher who felt that he should actually address issues that have real life consequences. And he has a very unique and direct voice. And uh, a lot of uh, modern philosophy is very theoretical. So uh, it was just very refreshing to me to come across someone who is uh, speaking about things that really mattered in people's lives. And lots of overlap with psychology in the book and talk about some concerns even today in 2022 we're recording that were present in the ancient world. Uh, that's true. In fact, um, I called Seneca a proto-psychologist because he really was, um, he just had an incredible sense for human psychology. And he actually talks about uh, psychological phenomena and psychological techniques that didn't even uh, have a name until like uh, within the last 50 or 100 years. Many podcast listeners might be familiar with Stoic philosophy, but for those who aren't, can you give a brief description? Stoicism uh, started uh, 300 uh, BC in Athens by Zeno of Sidium. And uh, then, unfortunately, most of the writings of uh, the early Greek Stoics are really lost to us. And it's the writings of the Roman Stoics who survive. And Seneca was the first major Roman Stoics. So he was born in uh, 4 BC. And so that's like 300 years after the school started. And it seems like um, the Roman Stoics were interested in all of the same topics, but they had a, a special interest in uh, what we would call ethics today. And with Seneca, it basically blends over into, uh, you know, what does it mean to lead a happy life? So that was actually one of the goals of all of the ancient schools of philosophy was to find eudaimonia or a life that was truly worth living. And uh, the Stoics thought that the way to do this was through the pursuit of virtue or development, developing a good character. So uh, a lot of Stoic philosophy is based on this idea of how do we you know, live really good lives and how do we develop a good character over time. And a big focus of Stoicism is dealing with things outside of our control. And one passage in your book, you write, even if the world seems out of control, the Stoics thought we could lead meaningful, productive, and happy lives. Even in adverse situations, our lives still can be tranquil and characterized by psychological equanimity. Right. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Stoicism is so popular these days. Um, I think that's one of the key reasons because... Uh, our own time is very similar to, um, for example, like the Hellenistic period and also the time of the early Roman Empire, where um, it seems like the world is really out of control. And uh, of course, the latest 
well, we had uh, the COVID pandemic and now we have the war in Ukraine. And so every every time you turn on the news, you're being bombarded with, um, you know, all of this disturbing uh, information. And so I noticed that there was a article on the BBC website. It, it It's currently on there. It's been on the, the front page for a few days about stoicism in the modern world. And I think one of the reasons they were compelled to publish that is because they see stoicism as a way of dealing with the uncertainties of modern life. Yeah, so the philosophy has been reborn in many ways. As many lifestyle changes, many changes in the world, people still keep going back to the classics, which is really nice to see that this philosophy is enduring and still relevant to modern life. Right. One of the things that people will discover when they read Seneca, I mean, this made a large impact on me, but I've seen other people mention it as well, is that uh, there have been huge changes in human society in terms of technology and the evolution of technology. But in terms of human psychology, we're really the same people that existed in Seneca's days. There's been very little in terms of uh, psychological evolution. So we have the same fears, hopes, you know, dreams, addictions, and things like that. So uh, that's why the Stoic, uh, the Roman Stoics have never gone out of style. Yes, and with a lot of bombardment, as you mentioned, from the news, we also see this in many cases of society, these ideas that, oh, you need to have this brand new car, you need to have these fancy watches, jewelry, clothes, whatever it might be. Seneca was very skeptical of consumerism and going with the crowds. Right. He, um, as far as I can tell, he was the first person to actually write about the psychology of consumerism. And uh, he writes about it in a sat satirical way because he was very good at writing satire as well. Um, but he does discuss the psychology of uh, consumerism at length. And it's kind of funny because he even mentions you know, this this phenomenon that we call keeping up with the Joneses. And he said uh, in this one passage that's uh, towards the beginning of the book that uh, it, it's surprising how if people will copy the behavior of others just because others have done it, so they'll buy the same things as if uh, copying the crowd made some kind of uh, behavior to be honorable. Yes, and the Stoics particularly Seneca, want us to question the value of things. Is this thing really worth it? Is it worth trading my time and work and labor to have these things that might be overrated and actually might take away from our lives, even though we think it might add to it? Right. I heard a really good line recently. Um, one of my friends uh, used it, and he said that we live in a time where people know the price of everything but the value of nothing. For example, like uh, people are obsessed with material things, and they know how much everything is worth supposedly, you know, based on the price and things like that, but they don't really take a deeper look at it and see what's really valuable in life. And so, uh, you know, we have all of these attachments to uh, external things uh, like they did in the ancient world as well, because uh, I mean, Seneca himself was very wealthy. And one of the reasons he was interested in consumerism is because he lived among you know, the top 1% of the elite in Rome. And so he saw all of this. And uh, I, I think that he had some um, attraction to wealth as well, because he was extremely wealthy, or, you know, he ended up that way. But over time, I think that he just increasingly saw how trivial the pursuit of wealth was. Right, we don't want to go to excess. Stoicism isn't calling for us living in squalor, living out right. in some ran random cave in the mountains or in the woods somewhere but rather uh, a moderate approach to life. Right, right, yeah. So uh, Seneca made this, well, the, the Stoics believed that uh, having some wealth uh, was an advantage because if you have wealth, then you're able to, you know, do good things with it and act, you're, you're able to use it in a virtuous way. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a chapter in the book on um, how to survive extreme poverty and extreme wealth because Seneca did write about wealth and poverty uh, quite a bit, and it's interesting. Um, I ended that chapter 
with uh, the story of a neighbor that I had when I lived in the United States. I lived in Michigan and he was extremely wealthy, but he knew how to uh, manage his wealth, you know, very well. He was totally down to earth. He wasn't like psychologically inflated by it. And his main interest was in improving society. And so the way that he, he used his wealth is uh, he started a program that got 30 people off of welfare. He was a training program. He gave them permanent jobs and he also donated like millions of dollars to the local community. So um, Seneca was sometimes attacked for being wealthy, but he made this, this exact point that uh, if you do have wealth, it allows you to use it in virtuous ways. And going more on the danger of crowds, you write in your book that we can pick up the bad habits of others. Seneca mentioned this a lot, this idea that if we're around people who are, what is it, like rolling in dirt or around a lot of dust, we can pick up that dust. And right. that's one of these dangers of being in these large crowds and mobs even. Right. Well, it's really interesting because um, one of his letters uh, to his friend, Lucilius is about this. He went to the gladiatorial games and he thought it might be entertaining in some way until he got caught up in the crowd and people were chanting for the death of people, you know, before him and they were killing each other. And so basically he talked about how this had a very bad effect on your character and how uh, what what he's actually describing it's the first description of like really a crowd or mob psychology which wasn't actually studied until like the mid 1800s and um, when I was researching this it was really interesting because there are quite a few references to this in Seneca's writings about how we pick up the character traits of people around us and he even uses these metaphors of uh, invisible influences like we pick them up like viruses and you know uh, they're virally transmitted and things like that which was very strange to be reading about during the pandemic actually <laughs> but um, <clears throat> he seems to have been the first person to actually write about uh, crowd psychology and what he said is that if we're around people who have bad characters, we can pick up their habits. But the opposite um, you know, side of that is if we associate with people who have good characters, we can pick up all of their good qualities as well. So um, it does make some uh, you know, difference in terms of the people that you hang out with. Uh, I think you would have agreed with this modern saying that uh, you're the average of the five people that you uh, spend the most time with. Sure. So stoicism calls for us to be very intentional about our choices and be mindful even that we have choices rather than just going about day to day doing the same thing over and over again or, exactly. oh, well, look, I gr grew up with these friends, so I'm with them for life. Well, maybe they're not such great people. And just because you spent the time with them doesn't mean that that's a great choice. And that's one advantage of the modern world is the connections we have online. We, we have the ability to make good choices and have quality people around us. It's not to say, oh, we're elitist. Sometimes stoicism gets that criticism. But, but I think that's really missing the point of like, hey, have value for yourself and look for value in others. Right. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So definitely being intentional about our choices and just taking a step back and just reevaluating things. Yes. <laughs> Actually, taking a step back... <clears throat> is uh, it, actually it's a stoic practice and uh, that's one of my favorite stoic practices. So now psychologists call that cognitive distancing. And uh, so one of the ways the ancient stoics, um, you know, describe that is like, for example, like the view from above with Marcus Aurelius or seeing nature from its own point of view, like uh, we exist in this infinite expanse of time and we're just this small little dot in you know the the infinite flow of time now those are those are very uh extreme ways to take a step back but um i think that taking a step back you know just in in daily life uh is, is very help helpful especially not falling prey to snap judgment so another favorite stoic practices um, of mine is to suspend judgment if you're not entirely sure about something Right. We, we see that with, as you mentioned in your book, online mobs that unjustly aim to cancel others. And 
we see a lot of excesses with the Me Too movement, for example, that someone will just make an allegation and suddenly the the person who's accused is the worst person in the world, but there wasn't even an investigation as to what happened and many details of the story could be wrong. Right. So yeah, maybe maybe just taking a moment rather than just going with this some um, popular opinion and um, crucifying people online. Yeah, unfortunately we've seen um a lot of cases where there'll be like a video clip online and people will make all of these, you know, judgments about it based on incomplete information and become, you know, very angry. And then other people will make the same judgments and become angry. And it turns out, you know, like um, we discover a few weeks later that everyone's interpretation was incorrect. And there have been a lot of news stories as well where people have made claims and they've been incorrect. So, uh, I think uh, just suspending judgment until you're entirely sure about something is uh, it's a very good virtuous stoic process and it, uh, it or, or it's a very good stoic practice, but it also goes along with the idea of due process. So, um, you know, we should give people the benefit of the doubt I- until uh, we really know what the, the true you know case is. Yes, even in the ancient world, philosophers would get a, a bad reputation. Oh, you're corrupting the youth. Oh, you're trying to bring <laughs> society down. You're challenging too many things. You're dangerous, right? And people can just hop onto that, and it's, it's not good at all. Right. Well, uh, Socrates was the first victim of uh, sure, cancel culture, sure. I guess, really. So. <laughs> all right, moving on to another part of your book. You talk about having and deconstructing certain beliefs, you're right, unless you can remove or deconstruct false beliefs that cause mental suffering, it's impossible for anyone to lead a happier life. What this goes back to is um, the the Stoic uh, theory of emotion, and they basically believed in four types of emotion. So the most primary emotion for the Stoics was love. And uh, the feeling of kinship that we have for other people, and that gives rise to human society and our social institutions. And then uh, they had another group of emotions, which were like nat- uh, natural feelings, basically uh, instinctual feelings that everyone experiences. And they had no problems with those. Um, the kind of emotions they had difficulty with were pathé or extreme negative emotions, which were violent and based on bad judgments or opinions in their sense. And they, they, they taught, they had those bad judgments would create these negative emotions that would like topple uh, someone's reason. And then the fourth group was like good emotions, which are, which are emotions uh, based on uh, correct rational judgments. And for example, uh, the key idea in stoicism is that it's not things that upset us, but uh, the opinions that we have about things. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, I have a story in the book. Imagine that you're walking down the road and it's a really rainy day and there's a big puddle and a car comes by and the car splashes you. Well, uh, someone might get splashed and just have the mental judgment. Well, I just I just got splashed. Maybe I should find a towel or something like that. But then another person might get splashed and say, oh, my God, you ru- you ruined my entire day. And then, you know, they want to uh, seek out revenge on the driver of the car. So that's like an illustration of how uh, extreme negative emotions can arise from bad judgments. And so Seneca wrote an entire book on anger and. Uh, in that book, he talks about how, you know, we can stop anger from coming into being by slowing down the process by, you know, which we make these judgments. So that goes back to this idea of, you know, taking a step back. And um, the Stoics also believed um, in what modern psychologists call uh, Socratic questioning, so that uh, we should actually question our opinions that give rise to negative emotions. And if we can see, if we can question our opinions, then it's possible to deconstruct those really extreme negative emotions. Yes. And many of these ideas led into modern cognitive behavioral therapy as well. So it's not just some musings of a philosopher, but rather something that was applied 
and tested and shown a lot of efficacy as far as treatment outcomes are concerned. Right. In fact, um, the Stoics actually uh, invented the cognitive theory of emotion, or they discovered it, which is behind modern like cognitive behavioral therapy. And the founders of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy even, you know, reference the fact that the Stoics were the first to arrive at this, uh, you know, insight into human psychology. Yes, and in many cases, reframing, right? Having this idea of, okay, well, I got splashed by the puddle. Some people might think, oh, the driver did that intentionally, or this happened to me because I'm a bad person. Right. I'm thinking, okay, well, there are other ways to describe this event and not have such a judgment, just trying to be open-minded, trying to be humble, trying to look for different ways of explaining the world around us. Right. Yes. A lot of people, um, make assumptions and, um, you know, so as I've grown older and a bit wiser, I've, I've learned that, um, it's really quite detrimental to make assumptions about things where you, you don't have the evidence for it. And, uh, like one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, you send an email to someone and they, they don't respond to you and, and you think, Oh my God, that person must hate me or they don't like me anymore or something like that. Whereas, uh, it might be the fact that, uh, they never received the email or they're busy. You actually have no idea. So you're just psychologically, psychologically projecting all of these, uh, you know, theories on why you never heard back from them. Yes, and more in psychology, you had Albert Ellis, who would talk of it as uh, masturbating, as having all these negative ideas that, oh, well, things must be a certain way. I have <laughs> to do this. And we, we could we could really work ourselves into some anger and misinterpret many situations. Yeah, and that's that's pretty normal behavior, actually, for people. Yeah, oh, he must respond to that email. And if he didn't do it in those 24 hours, then I'm a bad person or this person's terrible. Right, right? exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a waste of uh, psychological energy. That's that's for sure. And then uh, when you finally discover what the real reason is, then it makes you feel quite embarrassed that you had come to all these uh, false conclusions. About right. And, and there might be some discomfort and embarrassment, but that could be a sign of progress. For right. Sure. And hey, yes. now look, OK, I, I found out what things actually were. And we could perhaps laugh at ourselves in some ways. I know Epictetus was quite fond of doing and a lot of humor in Seneca's works as well. Not take ourselves too seriously and just be open for those revisions and look at what we would call mistakes as learning opportunities. Right. And um, I like the fact that you use the word progress because that was actually very important to Seneca. He, that's one of his most uh, frequently used terms in his letters to Lucilius. And um, in ancient Greek, uh, a student of Stoicism was called a prokopton or one who is making progress. And this is something that Seneca uh, stresses a lot, that stoicism is actually a path where you try to make a little bit of progress each day. And he said something like, um, you know, I'm not the best human being, but I'm glad not to be counted among the worst. And if I'm able to make a bit of progress each day and, uh, you know, improve my bad behavior, then that's something that I feel good about. Right. Many people would be disappointed because they set too high of an ideal that they're striving for perfection, but that's a very quick way to fail. Rather, we can see, okay, look, I improved in this way. This is good. And eventually, if I keep doing this, I'll get better in whatever domain it is and lead a better life. Yeah, I think um, most most progress is incremental. It's uh, very unusual to... Uh attain a high ideal overnight without working at it. <laughs> so. Right. Lots of trial and error. And hopefully those errors would be um, in the early stages of it. And over time, those would be lopped off. Yeah. We, we spoke of that. Humility is a very important stoic virtue. Learning, progressing, admitting room for progress is what you write in your book. And moving on more about time, you write. You write that many don't highly value their own time. Or later in life, they might have some regrets or realize that they missed out on many opportunities. People can postpone, postpone, oh, I'll get to this later, I'll get to this later. And then the, the, they miss that opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, this emphasis on time and making good use of time, 
that's pretty unique to Seneca. I, I don't know of any other Stoics who wrote about it, but he wrote about it quite a bit. And he felt that time is our most uh, valuable asset. He found it to be ironic that, um, you know, people value everything else in life. But if time is our most valuable asset, they seem to value that the least. And the reason he thought that is because obviously the time that we have is is limited. And he pointed out that some people um, really don't think about living their lives until they reach the very end of their life. And then they want to like start a new life then and it's too late. One of the things that I found to be really amazing uh, when I was uh, doing the research, because I really researched all of these ideas in depth because I wanted to be totally faithful and accurate to, to Seneca. And then I also compared the same ideas in uh, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. Um, like William Irvine has said that one of the reasons you want a philosophy of life is so that when you reach the end of your life, you don't feel like you have mislived your life. You don't on your, on your deathbed, you don't you know have all of these regrets. And one of the really surprising things that I found in the Stoic writers, which I found to be very beautiful, is that they all said, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius, that when you're on your deathbed, you should actually be grateful for the life the universe has given you. And I find that to be very beautiful because obviously if, if you're grateful, um, that means that you have really lived a life that's truly worth living. You don't have like a lot of regrets about things that you should have done differently. And so I think that that ties in with this idea of that, you know, the Stoics were trying to live a life that was truly worth living or a life that embodied a deep sense of well-being or eudaimonia. Right. So appreciate what we have, have that sense of gratitude. And although some things will go a different way than we would like, that's that's okay. There's this theme of acceptance in the Stoic text as well. And just being realistic that, yes, life isn't always a picnic, I think. As some of these comparisons that Seneca makes throughout the text, there, there are going to be troubles, there's going to be adversity. So how can we deal with that? How can we overcome this adversity and have that appreciation for the things that are going well that we can definitely enjoy and value? Yes. And um, I think stoicism, you know, is probably the most realistic philosophy, you know, in that regard, because they look at the world and, you know, they, they say, you know, they're going to be wonderful things that you experience, but you will experience setbacks and adversities as well. Um Another thing uh, that I found in all three of the Roman Stoics, which I also found to be inspirational, is this idea that no matter what happens to you, you can take a very negative situation and find some goodness in it or bring some goodness into the world. They all said that. And, um, you know, that's where like Ryan Holiday got this idea. You know, the obstacle is the way that's from Marcus Aurelius. But Seneca and Epictetus talk about that as well. And a good example of that is that, let's say you're taking a walk at night and it's dark out and you see some lights ahead and some smoke and <clears throat> you realize it's a really bad car crash. Well, obviously, um, you know, that's not a very good situation. But if you, uh, you know, approach the car crash and see that someone has been injured, then uh, if you reach out to help them, then you've manifested virtue and that's been a way to bring goodness into the world. So um, I just love that idea that, you know, no matter what happens, no matter how bad the situation might appear to be, it gives you an opportunity to, uh, you know, practice virtue and bring some goodness into the world. Yes. And there will be some calamities. Okay. We come up with um, a massive fever and we're bedridden for about a week. Like, okay, well, we might not have the energy to exercise and go about, daily living perhaps it can be a time to catch up on rest or, or yeah maybe there's not much good that comes out of the situation at all but it's just not losing our composure right in moment in moments like that or even more extreme uh, james stockdale if i'm remembering that name correctly was a prisoner of war and he was captured and and he wrote about enduring that situation and not just giving up in sight of the enemy exactly right so yeah we could try to make we could try to make the most of every situation but unfortunately there will be some extreme extreme adversities right well uh sometimes uh when you're faced with um 
a really negative situation if you can maintain your mental composure that's that's a manifestation of virtue in itself <laughs> and speaking about um, living for the now um i I hope that uh, listeners aren't getting confused. The Stoics aren't saying, okay, use all of your money and eat cotton candy every day and buy all these expensive things. That's not what they're talking about, living in the moment, living in the present, right? Right. Well, Seneca Seneca spoke about that a lot, and Marcus Aurelius uh, spoke about it as well. Actually, Marcus Aurelius actually read Seneca when he was um, very, very young. He doesn't mention Seneca, but... um, he was a big fan of Seneca, and uh, his uh, teacher of rhetoric, Fronto, didn't like the fact that uh, he read Seneca because he didn't like Seneca's flashy writing style, uh, <laughs> which is kind of funny because actually that's something that I really like about Seneca's his writing style. But uh, in any case, Seneca wrote a lot about uh, living in the present moment. And he talked a lot about how to uh, overcome worry and anxiety. And his main observation about worry and anxiety is that people are worried about things that might happen in the future. And to him, that indicated that people weren't living in the present moment. Now, he thought that people should plan ahead and, you know, and consider the future as well. But he thought that it was... um, somewhat ridiculous to worry or feel a lot of anxiety about things that might happen that haven't yet and that might not actually ever happen. And so one of the things that he said is that if you experience the wealth of living in the present moment, it's very difficult to feel anxious about things in the future. And uh, one of the implied you know, practices would be if you start worrying about things in the future, you should call yourself back to the present moment. It's not that you shouldn't have concern about things, but um, what I did, um, you know, over the past few years when I was studying Seneca is uh, I made it a point to actually eliminate the word worry from my vocabulary. And I just replaced it with concern because uh if you have a concern about something, it's something that you can address rationally. You say, I have, you know, this is my concern. And then it's like, how would you solve that? But it's a bit different than worrying. And I found that just making that small change actually had a rather large effect in terms of uh, reducing my feelings of anxiety. Yes. And one stoic practice is anticipating future adversity, that if we can think about some, what we would consider misfortune, we can be better prepared for that and maybe even take steps to reduce those kind of adversities in the future. Right. Uh, So they called that the uh, premeditation of future adversity. And uh, William Irvine calls it uh, like negative visualization. But this actually goes back before the Stoics. And uh, Chrysippus, um, who was the third head of uh, the Stoic school, actually wrote about this and encouraged this practice. And then pretty much all of the other, the, the later Stoics uh, followed this. And what it involves is just uh, if if you're concerned about something happening in the future, just you know think about it briefly. And uh, if you rehearse it mentally in your mind, then if it actually arrives, you will have robbed it of a lot of uh, emotional power. So it's kind of like the idea of, Actually, people have, everyone listening to this has probably experienced this. It's like a fire drill that you had in school. So uh, the fire isn't really happening, but the fire alarm goes off and uh, you rehearse what you would do mentally during the fire drill. And then if there actually is a fire, then you're mentally prepared for it and you won't panic, you know, in, when the actual adversity comes along. Yes, you'll be you'll be ready for it. And... Yeah, there might be some discomfort in thinking about those, what we would consider negative events in the future, but I think that would be far better than being totally unprepared, not knowing what to do. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, you know, this is a technique of modern psychology. It's called exposure therapy. And for example, uh, if you have like some kind of phobia, then what the psychotherapist will do is they'll they'll, they'll ask you to imagine it or they'll expose it to you in some, um, you know, manner just a little bit at first. And then, you know, you expose yourself a little bit more to it and a little bit more. And then eventually you can overcome the fear. Yes. And uh, one, one passage from Seneca, he, he takes this 
attitude of bring it on let's you know (laughs) let's bring on this challenge but he's saying okay well we're not desiring wild sickness but it's just the case that that can happen but maybe we can have some sort of challenge and that could be good for us but we're not desiring for things to completely overtake and debilitate us but that could be a possibility so okay let's test ourselves with some of these situations that would be outside of our control or perhaps invite some adversity into our life such as competition or learning a new trade that might be something difficult these can be things that could be beneficial for us right well he said that um the worst thing that could happen to anyone is that they're never tested by adversity because when you're tested by adversity it allows you to build your character and so for example if you've led an incredibly easy life and you're extremely wealthy and nothing has really upset you or you know because you've been protected from the world in different ways when something does come along and upset you then you're going to be much more you know vulnerable to it than someone who has had some kind of experience of adversity and has learned how to deal with it you write about complaining in your book you say that complaining can be more harmful to us than it is good. Instead of complaining, focus on gratitude and acceptance. Right. Uh, Seneca writes a lot about complaining. Uh, and actually, all of the Roman Stoics do. I think Seneca wrote more about it. Uh, but it's really interesting if you look at people who complain. Um, I, I was approaching it from a psychological viewpoint in the beginning of the chapter on complaining. And I came across some interesting studies. And one one of them was that uh, people in the workplace, I think they spent like 20% of their time uh, listening to people complain about things. And it's a total waste of time, obviously, because uh, when you complain about something, you're not making the situation better. It would be much better if people had, you know, discussions about things in terms of how they could be improved. But um, the Stoics had their own sort of unique view of this because they believed that um, we lived in a rationally ordered universe that was actually good in some way that the, the universe itself was the ultimate model of excellence or virtue. And uh they felt that if you could take a cosmic view of the world and like take a really big step back and look at it from like a cosmic perspective, if we could see everything from that perspective, which obviously we can't, that we would see that the universe is perfectly good and virtuous. And uh, so they had this very interesting view that when you're complaining, you're actually uh, criticizing the universe, which is intrinsically good. And so they they saw that as uh, not being a a really acceptable way of uh, looking at the universe. Yes. And some people can just never be satisfied. (laughs) That bar is too high. Nothing is good enough. I'm not good enough. Life is going to be quite miserable. And unfortunately, I've been seeing this trend rising within some online circles of um, a group that would call themselves true force loneliness or involuntary celibate or incel oh, that many uh-huh. of these many of these men are convinced and of course there are different perspectives here of like oh because of the looks i have or because of my height or whatever it is that i, I can't have a relationship this relationship is extremely important i want to get married and some people even go so far as to buy courses and pay a thousand dollars an hour for artists um pickup artists to coach them and and i i just find this this really terrible that some of these men are exploiting other men who feel really lonely who think that they are just lonely for the rest of their lives and it's just a lot of desperation i think and i feel sorry for some of these people yeah. and some have re reoriented and said hey well Maybe that um, dog and one and a half children in the white picket fence really isn't that important. And some people have found some solace in the single life. Or maybe I'm not having such high goals of, oh, I want to be with the most beautiful person ever. And I'm a failure if that's not the case. Right. Yeah, that's quite sad, in fact. And, um, you know, there are lots of uh, different ways that people complain. But it's always it always involves expressing um, emotional 
dissatisfaction. And when a lot of people complain, they're actually blaming others. And in the, the, the example that you just cited, people will blame themselves. It makes a lot more sense that if you, if you feel held back by something, you should actually try to work through it rather than assign blame or complain about it. It's, it's a total waste of time. And, um, I don't know. Some people are chronic complainers, though, and uh, they're very difficult to be around, actually. So I think we've all probably known people like that. And uh, I think uh, I did see a funny post uh, on Facebook the, the other day in one of the stoic groups from someone. He said, do you know any stoics who complain? And actually, th the stoics would be quite averse to complaining because they would if, if they were um, you know, upset about something in some way, they would try to approach it in a different manner. Yes, and not looking for validation from others, which yes. I think is one of the major weaknesses of this um, incel community or black pill perspective that, okay, well, look, if, if I'm not getting attention from others, then, okay, life is pointless, I've failed, and maybe there can be some solace in, yeah, that more solitude life or looking for good friends or some sort of companionship in another way right and getting attention from others in another way and exactly i think the stoics were very open to hey there isn't just one way to live life there are many ways that people can provide value to others to society or even if they were to step back from society maybe like the epicureans in some way but there are, there are a lot of different ways to have a fulfilled life it's not just one prescription that someone's going to put out there and if you miss that goal then all of a sudden you you failed in life Exactly. And what you said is uh, absolutely true, because when people complain, they're they're seeking uh, validation for their, you know, e emotional state. Yes. And it's this topic of desire that comes up a lot in Seneca that, OK, there might be these things we want, but maybe those things aren't as good for us as we think or as they're advertised. And maybe it can actually be a good thing to reduce desires and we can be more fulfilled in that manner. Well, Seneca, uh, one thing that he writes about extensively is the idea that um, our real goods come from within. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't appreciate the things that we have in the world. You know, um, if I have a beautiful house or a beautiful family or something like that, we should appreciate those things. But what Seneca would say is that we have to realize that all of the external things that we have are not really entirely permanent. Um, they're basically gifts that are on loan to the universe, and at some point the universe will uh, take them back. So we should remember that, for example, all of our loved ones are mortal <clears throat> and that someday we will lose them. And this is actually one of um, the unexpected benefits of this kind of uh, negative visualization you know, if you think that you're going to lose something or lose a loved one or maybe your house will be destroyed in a fire or something like that. Uh, so when you're if you actually do that practice of the premeditation of adversity, uh, surprisingly, it has the effect of making you feel much more grateful for the things that you have in the present moment, because then you don't take them for granted. Um, the Stoics actually wrote about this modern uh what we now call uh, hedonic adaptation that we just become used to everything that we have and so because of that people want to go out and buy more and more things to keep you know this kind of like emotional state going but um there's a passage in marcus aurelius where he says um rather than desiring things that you don't have be grateful for the things that you do have and think about how you would feel if you didn't have those things now, especially in, you know, our modern commercial culture. We're constantly being uh, told by advertisers that if we don't keep, you know, buying and acquiring new things, we'll never be happy. But the Stoics didn't believe that. They felt that our, our true goods are from having, our, our true good is to have an excellent character and then that will allow us to use the things in the world in an excellent way as well. Yeah, valuing the frugal life, modest living. Hey, I don't need that new $50,000 car. I can be fine with a decent used vehicle. And yeah, some 
modest clothes, that's fine. Not looking to be too flashy, that's okay. And, and finding that contentment from within, right? Rather than, oh, well, I need to wear this fancy watch in order to look cool or something. Like, well, whatever, I'll, I'll just... I'll just do my own thing. Now, there might be exceptions in that if you were to work in certain professions, you're expected to dress in a certain manner, but you don't have to break the bank doing that, right? There, right, there can always exactly. be a, a way to to save money and not expend all of your resources so quickly. Right. So Seneca wrote about that, and um, what he wrote about would today be called voluntary simplicity. And... Uh, I've always tried to follow that lifestyle as much as possible. Uh, but the problem is once you get on that hedonic treadmill, it's very hard to get off. Yeah, it, yeah, it depends on, on what it is or maybe taking up a, a new vocation, as I mentioned. For, for me, it seems exciting learning something new, picking up a new hobby, thinking of a new way to make money, a new business idea whatever. So, okay, you, you might get that rush and say learning a new game that you might be able to make money from. Okay, look, I can um, practice basic strategy and play blackjack and here are some advantage plays that I can find. And it's interesting learning these new things. And there's that, that kind of rush that comes with it. It's new. It's something exciting. It's something different. And maybe, oh, I can go to a new place. I can travel. I can meet new people. Maybe right. we, we can have all these experiences that at low cost rather than say paying cash to stay in the Maldives, right? Like, okay, well, we, we, you know, we don't, we don't need to have that experience. Although if we abuse um, points and miles and credit card rewards, that's another podcast that I have. Right. Yes. Um, yes. Th there can be a lot of frugal approaches that we can take and still have these nice experiences. I think that that's one big um, criticism of stoicism is like, Oh, you're missing out. And Oh, what about all these things? What about, um, you know, Oh, what, don't you want that? brand new flashy car or whatever you're, you're saying it doesn't have value but you're going to be so happy but you know we're realizing hey it's, it's actually not necessary to have the good life hey these things are indifferent right the, the stoics talk about things are not good or bad but it's, it's what we make of them right the, the judgments that we place yeah i do think we have a need for novelty uh and i i think that is important uh but there are different ways to pursue it the problem is is that um if you uh, buy like a, a $50,000 sports car, uh, you know, you might get a rush out of, you know, having that for a short while. But I, I do know someone who had like a, a car like that. It was a convertible and uh, she could only use it in the summertime. And then she had to pay to have it stored in the wintertime. And it was extremely expensive to insure as well. So at a certain point in her life, she decided that she wanted to become financially independent and, you know, then be free to do really whatever you want. And she came to realize that um, she was really tied down by owning that car. So she ended up selling it. Yeah. And financial independence is definitely something praiseworthy. Many people are saying, hey, we can make these sacrifices in the present to buy our time back. Right. later in the future right. and by having some discipline by having an element of frugality to our life and looking for ways to expand our wealth we can yet yeah, have that easier life later on rather than oh well this money is burning a hole in my pocket and i don't care i just want it now and this paycheck to paycheck lifestyle that i think actually adds more stress for example i'm like self-employed and uh i've worked in publishing my entire life i'm I own a book design and production company and things like that. And uh, I enjoy doing that work, but uh, I don't have to drive anywhere. The work comes to me. Uh, so I, I, I started a location independent business before people even were using that term because I started it during um, the big financial crash, I guess, of what was it, 2008. Uh, or I started it before then, but the economy was very bad in uh, West Michigan where I lived. And so I wanted a business where I could have clients anywhere in the United States. And that turned out to be pretty well. It, it, that worked out very well. And it allowed me to actually move overseas where the cost of living is less. And so that allows me to lead a somewhat pleasant, you know, contemplative life where I don't have to work nine to five every day or commute. And so I was able to cut back on my expenses, but it actually increased the quality of my life compared to say like having a nine to five job. 
Nice, nice. And that, that was one thing I found about the pandemic was it was a big call to diversify income and diversify my time rather than just relying on one source or one thing because, oh, look, now I just have to be in my apartment for a while and the world doesn't appear to be so safe. So maybe I can do some other things and that gives some more peace of mind and keeps keeps it interesting. Right, exactly, yeah. All right, we're coming towards the end here. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add, any upcoming projects or any topics in your book that we didn't discuss? Um, well, actually, uh, a few days ago, I wrote an article about... Uh, why we feel the grief of war because of uh, what's going on in Ukraine, which uh, I think everyone has been uh, quite shocked by. We shouldn't let you know things upset us, but or rather, it's not things that upset us, but it's our opinions about things. I don't think that applies to everything. I think that actually, if you're upset about uh, seeing all of these news reports and footage from the Ukraine, that it is actually uh, justifiable to be upset about it from a stoic perspective um, and to feel grief about it. There's a chapter in the book about grief and Seneca wrote a lot about grief and uh, he actually wrote like five essays to friends of his who had like lost loved ones about how to deal with grief and so on. So that's something he was very concerned about. So I was trying to think about this from a stoic perspective and uh, what Seneca said is that uh, when you lose a loved one, you experience grief, uh, not because it's a bad judgment. It, it's not a, it's not one of those uh, pathological emotions. It's one of those natural feelings or instincts that's common to all people. So if you love someone and they die, then, of course, you're going to feel grief. And uh, so he wrote about that at, at length. And he had this very good strategy for dealing with grief which was that if you lose a loved one, then um, what you should focus on is the kinds of happy memories that you had with that person and the gratitude that you feel, you know, for the time that you had to spend together with that person. And so if you do that over time, then eventually your feelings of grief will be replaced with feelings of gratitude. And so uh, I was trying to, uh, in this article, it's going to be on my website uh, tomorrow, stoicinsights.com. And I was trying to uh, figure out why we feel so much grief over uh, seeing these images of war. And I came up with uh, two basic reasons. And one of them is that the Stoics believed that uh, the primary emotion that we feel is uh, love and connection with humanity. And that gives rise to society. So when we see these horrible images of war, uh, it's only natural that we would feel grief when we see human suffering. There was a Persian poet, uh, Saadi, uh, who has this really famous poem from like around the 1300s. And he said, uh, and this is actually very stoic as well. He said that uh, all human beings are um, members of, uh, like one organism, that humanity is one organism, and if or we're limbs of one organism. So if one part of humanity is suffering, then it's only natural that the other parts would suffer as well when they see that. And if you don't feel that kind of suffering, why even bother to call yourself a human being? So that's like this ancient idea of humanitas or love for humanity. The other thing that links us together with other people is the Stoics believe that we all have a spark of reason within us, uh, which makes us brothers and sisters of one another. So that's like their idea of the cosmopolis. So for those two reasons, it would be very natural to feel, you know, these, uh, you know, negative emotions, these feelings of grief when people are suffering the way that they are. And, um, it's very different from the kind of grief that you feel when you lose a loved one because you can look back on the good experiences that you had and feel grateful for all those times that you had together but in this kind of situation you can't even do that so what i realized is that probably the thing that makes me feel better is to feel gratitude for what i have now you know so i have uh a comfortable house. I have a roof over my head. Um, 
Uh, I have a beautiful family. Uh, I have heating. Uh, I live in Sarajevo. Uh, 100% of our gas comes from Russia, by the way, and they've cut it off in the past for political reasons so that we could always lose that. But I think, you know, being able to feel that kind of gratitude is is good, is helpful. But another reason that people feel grief about this Ukraine situation is because um, not only do we see all of this suffering, but we've lost the sense of the world that we lived in before. And we're living in a totally new and unpredictable world now. So we, in the sense we had this kind of feeling of security, for example, that um, maybe the Russians were people we could do business with, and you know we'd live in this, you know, world where uh, we were helping each other, and all the different countries were getting along. And now we see the true face of what, for example, like Putin is really capable of doing. And uh, I think that's quite shocking, and I, th I think that's having probably. Um, uh, a deep psychological impact on people that we probably aren't discussing enough. So that's one reason I just wanted to bring it up. I think that's something uh, that uh, everyone should be thinking a bit about now and, and, and ways that we could, uh, uh, you know, mitigate those feelings. Of course, another way to do it is to help people who are in need, which there are millions of now. Right. And even unplugging from the news. And I know that was something with, the pandemic that people were just plugged in and watching and seeing all these statistics and all these people dying and all these terrible things and it can be quite overloading in many ways right so maybe it can be something of hey don't become too preoccupied with this thing that's largely outside of your control yes we can do some things are we really going to have that high element of control? And is it going to be so helpful to just see all the scrolling news all the time? Right. They call that doom scrolling. I just learned that recently. <laughs> and uh, I have to admit that I've been very guilty of that because um, for some reason, whenever there's a crisis in the world, I become acutely interested in it. And and this is on the scale of something that we haven't uh, you know, seen before since, for example, like uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. So we're so this this really is the stoic moment. I mean, we've been through a pandemic, and now we have to deal with this, and we have to deal with uh, inflation and the economic impact that it's going to have, and you know even these uh, insane threats of nuclear war that we're having. So I think this is the stoic moment. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And for more stoic moments, make sure to check out David's book. Breakfast with Seneca, A Stoic Guide to the Art of Living, Amazon, and fine booksellers near you. Hey, it's been great speaking with you. All right. And once again, if you can provide your website and some resources, ways that people can reach you, feel free to plug as you wish. Okay. Um, I have a website. It's called StoicInsights.com. And if you just Google Stoic Insights, you'll find that. All right, very good. Any upcoming speaking, any conferences, any special events coming up? Um, I think there will be some things in the fall, and um, I'm hoping to make a trip to England. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening this year, so um, I, 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 it's not uh, everything isn't um, firmed up yet, but hope, hopefully uh, we'll have some travel this year. All right, and maybe another Stoic Philosophy Conference, Stoicon 2022, uh -huh. in person? Uh, maybe? Hard, it's hard to say because um, <laughs> I actually went to the the last one. That was the first one I went to. It was in Athens. Yes, yes, I was there as well. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't meet. But, but uh, uh, um, as you know, it was just fantastic. It was unbelievable. And uh, I had the best time there. It was just incredible. So uh, hopefully they'll start doing them again in person. Because I, I find meeting people in person to be very valuable. And obviously, with the pandemic, the, everything has been online. So I hope that eventually we'll get back to seeing real flesh and blood human beings. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining me today. Sounds great. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. See the show notes for more information and links surrounding topics discussed in the episode. Support my efforts through Patreon or Subscribestar, linked on my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. Access special perks, including having upcoming podcast guests answer your questions, custom-made podcast episodes, 
and private one-on-one calls to discuss whatever you'd like. Visit my other podcast at hurdygurdytravel.com, that's H-U-R-D-Y-G-U-R-D-Y travel.com, to learn how to make money, save money, and travel the world at next to no cost with credit card rewards, deals, and loyalty programs. Use affiliate or referral links to support me at no extra cost to you. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.